I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Welcome to Fearful, the podcast that takes you on a thrilling journey through the world of mysteries, paranormal phenomena, and all things terrifying. We will explore eerie tales of haunted places, unsolved crime, inexplicable events, and supernatural encounters. So embrace the fear and unravel the mysteries that lie beyond. My name is Jacko. And this is Fearful. Once upon a scorching August in 1971, Stanford University hosted a psychological experiment that took volunteers on a journey into the unknown. It was led by Professor Philip Zimbardo and called the Stanford Prison Experiment, also known as SPE. What unfolded was a chilling story of power, control, and unveiling of the human behavior. The experiment was designed for a group of volunteers to enter a simulated prison, but none knew what they were about to dive into. It was a two-week exploration of the human mind. Professor Zimbardo wanted to understand how the environment of a prison could affect people's behavior. Little did he know. The experiment would go down in history as one of the world's most controversial experiments. As the days pass within the confines of the crafted prison cells, the experiment turned into a very disturbing look into the human soul. The fake prison became a battleground where the lines between prisoners and guards blurred into a twisted dance of power and submission. After the eerie spectacle, the Stanford prison experiment sparked debate about the ethics. People questioned whether it was a proper scientific experiment, or if it was rather a joyride into the darker side of humanity. The aftermath through the years became a reminder of the thin line between research and ethical concerns. Critics emerged, denouncing the study as unscientific and even fake. 
but the mental scars on those who willingly entered Professor Zimbardo's experiment stood as a silent testament to the price that was paid for knowledge. The official goal of the experiment, as stated on its website, was to understand the psychological effects of being a prisoner or being a god. But behind the scientific terms lay the tale of power struggles, group identity, and the unsettling validation of behavior in the oppressive walls of a pretend prison. Professor Zimbardo, in a moment of honesty, once shared his true motives. He was fascinated by the power of roles, rules, symbols, and group identity. The experiment was his attempt to unravel how ordinary people could be influenced into anti-social acts when hidden behind the cloak of namelessness. But that is enough discussion of the shrouded debates regarding the experiment. Let's explore more of what really took place to give it its controversial title. The experiment, funded by the U.S. Office of Naval Research, obtained the green light from the university and quickly embarked on their intriguing experiment, and the researchers cast their recruitment net wide. As advertisements discreetly nestled in the help-wanted section of the Palo Alto Times at the Stanford Daily Newspaper in August 1971, it beckoned to the male college students of the world, reading this. Male college students needed for psychological study of prison life. $15 per day for one to two weeks beginning August 14th. For further information and applications, come to room 248 Jordan Hall, Stanford University. Seventy-five eager men answered the call, stepping into the unknown with the promise of financial reward and a psychological adventure. Following a series of screening assessments and interviews, the pool was narrowed down to 25 brave, willing souls to take part in a two-week simulated prison experiment. The applicants, a predominantly white middle-class group, seemed to possess the coveted qualities of psychological stability and physical health. Deliberately excluding those with criminal backgrounds, psychological impairments, or medical issues, the researchers curated a group that fit the specific mold they desired. However, critics of the study raised a skeptical eyebrow, suggesting that the way the participants were selected might have influenced the eventual results of the experiment. The ad, seeking both prisoner guards and prisoners, painted a picture that veered away from a straightforward social psychological study 
in 2008, Thomas Conham and Sam McFarlane argued the very act of volunteering for the Stanford experiment might have attracted individuals with traits associated with abusiveness, such as aggression, right-wing authoritarianism, social dominance orientation, and narcissism, leaving the study and experiment poisoned from the very start. They proposed that those lacking in disproportional empathy and altruism were likely to step forward for the prison experiment. Hindsight is 2020, of course, and the experiment continued with the hopes of success without the whispers of critics in their ears. With the cast assembled, fate intervened on a random basis. Half of the subjects were handed the mantle of God. Nine individuals with three potential substitutes. While the other half embraced the role of prisoner. Another nine with three potential substitutes once again. All of which willingly signed up for a seven to fourteen day commitment and were enticed with the allure of $15 per day, an equivalent of $113.61 in 2024. With the stage set, the actors chosen, the unfolding drama of the Stanford Prison Experiment was about to commence. The eve before it started, a transformation occurred within the depths of Jordan Hall's basement, where a 35-foot section became the stage for this psychological drama. Mock prison cells, each designed to confine three prisoners, were meticulously arranged. The cells each measured seven feet by ten feet. They were devoid of light, intended to harbor three prisoners each, they were provided with a cot, complete with a mattress, sheets, and a pillow. The prisoners found themselves confined, mandated to spend every moment in their cell or in the yard, trapped in a surreal routine until the study's conclusion. The dimly lit corridor served as this prison yard. A closet cast in the corner was a foreboding shadow as solitary confinement and across from the prisoners lay a large room for the on-duty guards and warden. The guards also operated in a separate environment, detached from the prisoners altogether, special areas for rest, relaxation. It beckoned to them, a respite from the intensity of the prison simulation. The guards... Organized into teams of three, worked in eight-hour shifts. Their instructions were clear to maintain control. A day prior to plunging into the experiment, the researchers conducted an orientation session for the soon-to-be guards. In this surreal briefing, guards received explicit instructions. Maintain law and maintain order, but... Avoid physical harm to the prisoners or depriving them of sustenance. 
armed with wooden batons to assert their status, adorned in de-individualizing clothes, reminiscent of actual prison guards. They wore khaki shirts and pants acquired from a local military surplus store, and their eyes were shielded by mirrored sunglasses to shroud them and give them the wielding power of psychological warfare. Guards were also instructed to strip prisoners of their names, reducing them to mere numbers, a tactic aimed at diminishing individuality, as explained by Professor Zimbardo. With this deliberate removal of control, prisoners found themselves powerless, eventually succumbing to a sense of helplessness, leading them to stop responding and surrendering to their fate. As the psychological experiment commenced, Professor Zimbardo donned the mantle of superintendent, overseeing the unfolding drama from a position of authority. Alongside him, an undergraduate research assistant named David Jaff stepped into the role of warden. Their roles fusing reality with simulation. Sunday, August 15th, Day 1, The Arrest of the Prisoners On the inaugural day of the experiment, the participants assigned the roles of prisoners were thrust into a harrowing ordeal. The unexpected knock on their doors came, but not from an ordinary visitor but from the local Palo Alto police executing mock arrests at their home or assigned locations. The element of surprise was intentional. Participants had not been forewarned. A direct breach of the ethics outline in Professor Zimbardo's own contract, which all participants had signed. The mock arrests were not mere theater. They involved serious charges armed robbery and burglary under Penal Code 211 and 459, respectively. The Palo Alto Police Department collaborated with the experiments team, executing full booking procedures for the police headquarters. Miranda rights were recited, fingerprints were taken, and mugshots were captured. The entire process was meticulously documented by the San Francisco TV station reporter, traveling with the professor. As the arrested participants were whisked away, sirens blaring, the simulation continued to unfold. At the Stanford County Jail, they underwent systematic strip searches, shedding not only their clothes, but their identities as well. In a ritualistic fashion, they were assigned new identities, complete with inmate identification numbers, ill-fitting, uncomfortable smocks, and a chain was also fitted around one of their ankles and served as a constant reminder of their newfound status. The dehumanization continued as guards addressed prisoners by their assigned number sewn onto their uniforms. The prisoners, now clad in prison garbs, were ushered into the prison by the warden, and the prisoners were presented with the rules for the prison. 
The first day unfolded with an unsettling atmosphere as the inmates retreated to their cells and the psychological toll on the participants began to sink in. Monday, August 16th, day two. The sun dipped below the horizon, casting shadows over the makeshift prison. Guards rigid in their roles continued their duties and addressed prisoners, once again, not by their names, but by the identification number on their clothes. In the small cells the prisoners were confined, the air was thick with tension. At 2.30 a.m., the monotony of the night was shattered. The prisoners pushed to the edge by the guards' intrusive wake-up calls orchestrated a rebellion against them. Whistles and the clang of batons had become the unwelcome symphony of their confinement, and the prisoners had had enough. They refused to leave their cells for the yard and began tearing off their inmate number tags, discarding stocking caps, and hurling insults at the guards. In a bid to reassert control, guards resorted to spraying them with fire extinguishers. The chaos escalated, prompting the summoning of three backup guards to quell the uprising and to restore order. As the skirmish subsided, the aftermath revealed a stark reality. All semblance of comfort was stripped away. Prisoners were left exposed, devoid of clothing, mattresses removed from their cells. They were left with nothing. The main instigators faced the wrath of their captors and were sentenced to time in the hole a measure that further isolated them from the already claustrophobic environment. The psychological warfare only intensified as guards determined to squash any seed of rebellion whispered to one another, branding the prisoners as dangerous. Tuesday, August 17th, Day 3 as the third day unfolded with guards implementing strategies to curb further acts of rebellion, those with minor roles in the uprising were separated and rewarded. They got to spend time with the good cell, where they enjoyed privileges denied to the rest. Privileges such as clothing, beds, and regular meals. However, the illusion of comfort was short-lived as they returned to their old cell now devoid of beds approximately 12 hours later. The guards' power reached disturbing heights as they abused their authority, all to humiliate the inmates. Arbitrary commands had prisoners counting off and doing push-ups at their whim and beck and call. Access to bathrooms became restricted and prisoners were forced to relieve themselves in buckets within their own cells. The first crack in the facade of the Stanford prison experiment emerged in the unraveling of Douglas Corpy, known as Prisoner 8612. After enduring 36 hours in the oppressive environment, he reached a breaking point and screamed, Jesus Christ, I'm burning up inside. 
and I can't stand another night. I can't take it anymore. Witnessing Corby's distress, research assistant Craig Haney intervened, releasing him from the experiment. However, in a twist in the tale that surfaced during a 2017 interview when Corby admitted that his breakdown was a ruse. In reality, he orchestrated the episode to escape the confines of the experiment in order to return to his studies. Corpy regretted not filling a false imprisonment charge at the time. Wednesday, August 18th, Day 4 As the days in the simulated prison dragged on, the psychological toll of the participants deepened. The guards' practice of dividing prisoners based on behavior led to growing distrust among the inmates. The rift widened as rioters deemed others as potential snitches, while some prisoners viewed rebels as threats to the fragile status quo. Amidst the turmoil, prisoner 819 began to exhibit signs of distress, breaking down into tears within his cell. Professor Zimbardo intervened and prisoner 819 was the next to be removed from the experiment. As he left, the guards orchestrated a very chilling display. Remaining inmates were coerced to loudly and repeatedly shout, 819 did a bad thing. Thursday, August 19th, Day 5 Day 5 dawned with a scheduled twist. The introduction of visitations by friends and family meant to simulate a slice of prison experience. The prisoners were left sitting in prolonged waits, watching each second tick by before they were granted a mere ten minutes with their loved ones. Ten minutes, where God stood behind them watching over them, listening to every word. Parents grew concerned about their son's well-being, and frustration grew as some parents departed with plans to contact lawyers, seeking early release for their children. On this eventful day, Professor Zimbardo's colleague, Gordon H. Bauer, arrived for a check-in. Simultaneously, Christina Mulch made a night visit to the prison only to be distressed by the sight of guards abusing the prisoners. One of the acts she witnessed was them forcing bags over their heads to wear, restricting their breathing. She confronted Professor Zimbardo about his apparent lack of caring oversight and the moral implications of the study. She boldly pointed out the transformation of Zimbardo and he had undergone as superintendent, a change that she found unrecognizable and distasteful. It seemed the professor himself had been sucked into his very own psychological experiment. Friday, August 20th, Day 6 With mounting objections from Christina, growing concerns from parents, and an alarming rise in the brutality exhibited by the guards, 
Professor Philip Zimbardo made the crucial decision to bring an end to the study on the sixth day. He gathered all participants, guards, prisoners, and researchers to announce the termination of the experiment and payments for the six days were arranged. Subsequently, extensive debriefing sessions were conducted first with prisoners, then the guards, and finally a collective sharing experience. In the aftermath, participants were tasked with completing a personal retrospectives to be mailed to the professor. A week later, they were invited to reconvene and express their opinions and emotions in the wake of the experiment's unsettling conclusion. As the physical remnants of the jail were dismantled, reverting the basement of Jordan Hall to its usual function as grad student offices, Professor Zimbardo and his research team, including Craig Haney and Curtis Banks, delved into the compilation of data. This wealth of information served a foundation for several articles and a later comprehensive review of the Stanford Prison Experiment in the book, titled The Lucifer Effect. The study's termination marked not only the end of a harrowing experiment, but also the beginning of extensive analysis and reflection on the ethical boundaries of psychological research. For years, people have studied, discussed, and debated the Stanford Prison Experiment, each person having their own point of view and conclusions from what they reviewed. Yet, one thing has emerged a theme from nearly every single person. The events that unfolded within the Mark Prison were inhumane, they were cruel, and they were beyond terrifying. 